When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I don't know why I laugh at my own introduction. It's just what I like to do. So that's just the way it is. Have you ever noticed um, how what is normal practice to us is, well, a bit unconventional or even crazy to other people in the hobby? Yeah. I mean, when I describe our little hobby niche to other hobbyists who have different areas of interest... It's interesting that I'm usually met with looks of kind of like, okay, and the occasional inquiry as to why we do what we do with our aquariums. And I totally get it too. I mean, to the hobbyist unfamiliar with our little niche, it does seem a bit odd that we take a, you know, what people would call a perfectly clean aquarium and throw a large amount of leaves and seed pods and stuff to decompose on the bottom into it. It sort of goes against the grain of mainstream aquarium thinking. I know we've talked about that a lot. Now we do add a lot of biological materials uh, to our tanks in the form of leaves and botanicals. And this is perfectly analogous to the process of alochthonous input, a material that's imported into an ecosystem from outside of it. Yeah, it's exactly what happens in the flooded forests, the meadows, the tropical streams and rivers uh, of the world that some of us just completely obsess over. Now, there's been a fair amount of research and speculation by both scientists and even hobbyists about the processes which occur when terrestrial materials like leaves and botanical items enter aquatic environments. And most of it's based on field observations, people that go out and look at this stuff. As hobbyists, we have a rather unique opportunity to observe firsthand the impact and the effects of this material right in our own aquariums. I love this aspect of our practice as it creates really interesting possibilities to embrace and create not only more naturally functioning systems, but also possibly even validating the field work done by scientists and ecologists. And it goes without saying that there's implications for both the biology and the chemistry of the aquatic habitats when leaves and other botanical materials enter them. We've talked about this before, right? Many of these things, uh, many of these things are, that we as hobbyists also observe every day in our aquarium happen in nature. We get to see firsthand how leaves and botanical materials impact the life of our fishes and the other aquatic organisms in these closed little ecosystems. It's indoor field work, if you will. That's what we do. Phenomenon such as the appearance of biofilms, which was long a topic that simply never came up in the hobby outside of maybe dedicated shrimp keepers, are now simply part of the equation in a properly established botanical method aquarium. We understand that they appear as a normal part of the process when you know terrestrial materials become submerged underwater. We're seeing them for the benefits that they provide our systems rather than freaking out and panicking at their first appearance. It's a fairly profound shift in the hobby, if you ask me. Now, interestingly, if you, you research the stuff beyond just the aquarium world, you find some cool stuff out there. A lab study I stumbled on found out that when leaves are saturated in water, biofilm is at its peak when other nutrients, for example, nitrate and phosphate, tested at their lowest limits. Now, this is interesting to me because it seems that in our botanical method aquariums, biofilms tend to occur early on when one would assume that these compounds are at their highest concentrations, right? 
because they're immature nutrient export systems. And biofilms are essentially the byproduct of bacterial colonization, meaning that there must be a lot of food for the bacteria at some point if there's a lot of biofilm, right? More questions. Does this simply, you know, imply that the biofilms arrive on the scene and maybe peak out kind of early, an indication that there's actually less nutrient in the water? Is the nutrient bound up in the biofilms themselves? And when our fishes and other animals consume them, does this provide a significant source of sustenance for them? Hmm, well, we kind of know the answer to the last part. I think it does. Oh, and here's another interesting observation. When leaves fall into streams, uh, field studies have shown that their nitrogen content typically will increase. Now, why is this important? Scientists see this as evidence of microbial colonization, which is correlated by a measured increase in, wait for it, oxygen consumption. Now, this is interesting to me because those rare disasters that we hear about in our tanks when we do see them, uh, which fortunately isn't that often, are usually caused by a hobbyist adding a really large quantity of leaves and stuff all at one time, which results in the fishes gasping at the surface, which is a sign of oxygen depletion. Makes sense, right? As I've said repeatedly, if we don't make the effort to try to understand the hows and whys of nature and attempt to you know, try to always skirt her processes, she can and she will kick our asses. It's just fact. Now, these are interesting clues about the processes of decomposition of leaves when they enter into our aquatic ecosystems. They have implications for our use of botanicals and the way we manage our aquariums. Now, I think that the simple fact that pH and oxygen tend to go down quickly when leaves are initially submerged in pure water during lab tests gives us an idea as to what to expect. And a sort of set of expectations is always nice to have when you're pursuing unusual niches or approaches in aquarium keeping, right? A lot of the initial environmental changes in our aquariums will happen rather rapidly and then stabilize over time, which of course leads me to conclude that the development of sufficient populations of organisms to process the incoming botanical load is a critical part of the establishment of our botanical method aquariums. In other words, go slowly. So here's another thing to consider. Inputs of terrestrial materials like leaf litter and seed pods can't, you know, they can leach dissolved organic common, uh, carbon, which is, you know, rich in lignin and cellulose and factors like light, mineral hardness of the water and the, you know, population of the bacterial community affect the degree to which, you know, this material is broken down into its constituent parts in this environment. Or if the resulting breakdown creates some, you know, algae fuel or whatever. That's something we've kind of known for a while, though, right? Think about lignin. Lignin's a major component of the stuff that's leached in our aquatic environments, along with that other big player, tannin. You know, lignin is found in just about every plant or every, you know, plant part that we play with. And think about it. What benefits does lignin provide in the aquarium context? I mean, does it provide any benefits? Of course, we're sort of into the tannins. But again, lignin, what does it do? Is it, is it it's like it's possibly nutritious to some organisms, perhaps xylophorus uh, or xylophorus. I don't know if it's pronounced xylophorus. Xylophor? Well, xylophorus, but <laughs> creatures that consume wood or, or at least uh, uh, rasp at the wood. Lignin might be an important nutritional um, component for them. But of course, tannins are a little different. Tannins, when you talk to a chemist, will tell you they're a group of astringent biomolecules that bind to and precipitate proteins and other organic compounds. They're in almost every plant around, and they're thought to play a role in protecting the plants from predation and potentially to aid in their growth. As you might imagine, they're super abundant in leaves. 
In fact, it's thought that tannins comprise as much as 50% of the dry weight of a given bunch of leaves. Like, holy shit, that's a lot, right? And of course, tannins in leaves, wood, and plant materials tend to be highly water-soluble, helping to create that, you know, lovely tinted appearance that we like so much as they break down. And as the tannins leach into the water, you know, they create that dark little stain that we like so much. In simplified terms, um, this kind of water, let's talk about black water. I mean, I know we've gone over back and forth about the, the aquarium definition of black water versus black water in nature, which is a very specific set of ecological characteristics, mostly relating to geology as opposed to just leaves and things dissolving in the water. But in simplified terms, black water tends to occur when the rate of carbon fixation, i.e. photosynthesis, and its partial decay to soluble organic acids exceeds its rate of complete decay to carbon dioxide, known as oxidation. So think that through and, and, and chew that a little bit. And it just goes to show you that some of the things that we could do in our aquariums, like utilizing alternative substrate materials, you know, botanicals, and perhaps even submersion-tolerant terrestrial plants, are strongly reminiscent of what happens in the wild. Sure, we typically don't maintain completely open systems, but I wonder just how much of the ecology of these kind of habitats we can replicate in our tanks and what potential benefits may be realized. Now, our community over the years has done a lot of work with this. We've played with them with these igapo environments, temporal environments, ephemeral environments. We are starting to understand that cycle of wet and dry in the life which arises in both you know, of those, uh, those time frames. But I think there's a lot going on. And I think having just a bit more than a superficial understanding of the way botanicals and other materials interact with the aquatic environment and how we can embrace and replicate these natural systems in our own aquariums is a huge advantage for us as fish keepers. The real message here is to not be afraid about learning about seemingly complex chemical and biological nuances of blackwater systems. It's not as scary as you think. And it Again, when you can correlate it with things you're seeing in your tank every day, it starts to make more sense. And then, again, uh, at least we're looking at these things on a level that we need you know, to have. And that gives us a basic understanding of what to expect in our aquariums. Nature offers tons of clues and nuances and lots of ideas for us to run with. And our, as our practices evolve, I think it's important for us to take a more holistic approach. One that takes into account, you know, the ionic content of the source water, the careful attention uh, or addition of, of substrate. I say attention because careful attention to substrate. Uh, thinking about what botanical materials you use, how wood interacts with the water, and all the other unique aspects of our aquariums, which make them some of the most, I think, realistic representations of nature that's ever been attempted in the aquarium world. Observation, experimentation, and iteration are all important parts of the puzzle here. It's time for what I call field work. Time for more indoor field work. So who's in? Until next time, stay resourceful, stay curious, stay motivated, stay creative, stay thoughtful, stay excited, and always stay wet. This is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.